It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. If you're listening to this podcast at home, you are not alone. Your home is buzzing with life, from the fruit flies in the kitchen, to the infernal mouse under the oven, to the microbes in your beer or your cheese or your kimchi. As biologist Rob Dunn shows in his new book, Never Home Alone, your house is a wilderness. There are thousands of species of insects, bacteria, fungi, plants, archaea, you name it, it lives there. But the trouble with wilderness is that humans always want to tame it, clean it, bleach it, sterilize it, kill it. And the consequences for doing that might look pretty on the outside, but when you look at it under a microscope, it gets quite ugly and deadly. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can make peace with the microbes. Rob Dunn joins us to teach us some manners about how to welcome these unknown little guests into our homes. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thanks for having me on the, the program. What I really enjoy about your book is that it's almost like a return to the origins of microbiology itself, which we can place almost 350 years ago to Delft, where Antony van Leeuwenhoek turned his microscopes to the teeny tiny creatures he discovered living in his own house. That's right. I mean, in many ways, the study of small things actually began in houses, and then we sort of lost that that thread of inquiry. But I mean, the very first place anyone ever saw bacteria was in pepper in a teacup of water in Leeuwenhoek's house. And, and so I think it's fitting that we return to think about the life in the house more generally again. Right. And you say return because actually we can't really draw a straight line from Leeuwenhoek's work to your work because there is this huge period where either nobody cared about these tiny little creatures or they only cared about the evil ones. Why was that? After Leeuwenhoek died, the inquiry into microscopic life in general sort of died with him. But then when the field was reborn, it was reborn in the context of germ theory. So we'd figured out that some of these small species could kill us and so to the extent that people then continued to study the life in houses, it was really in that context. How do we just get rid of all of it so that we don't have to worry about it at all? I want to ask you how you shifted your research interests from the jungle to our somewhat less tropical backyards. I really like the story that you tell of the, uh, the mythical tiger ant. Yes, yeah, so the, the shift depended a lot on, on my students, but then also sort of happenstance of discovery. 
And the one that you mentioned is actually a case where a, a student who was at the time a high school student, Catherine Driscoll, came into the lab and she said that the one thing she for sure wanted to study was tigers. And I've worked in rainforests a lot, but I've never studied tigers and I'm never going to study tigers. And so we had to find some kind of redirect. Um, and the other reality was that she was going to work in the lab in Raleigh and she wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> and so, we, so we, we told her that she could look for a tiger ant. And uh, this, this was a lot of a misdirect in the sense that we'd just given a common name to this ant that we wanted her to find. In fact, it didn't have a common name and tiger ant probably wasn't even that apt. And the ant that we sent her off to look for had only been found once in the United States before, and we knew nothing about its basic biology. But I thought she would go off outside, she would find something else she was interested in, not tigers. But instead, she, along with a graduate student, went behind the building and started sampling ants and actually found this ant. And she was the first one ever to see this ant alive uh, behind our building. We kept having things like this where... You know, I thought we were looking for one thing, and then there'd be some totally new discovery right where we were living. And so I think that this is part of a a broader trend of realizing that, oh, these things we studied in the Galapagos Islands or deep sea vents or tropical termites, they also relate to everything we do every day, and we just haven't paid that much attention. So what besides ants have you discovered in the modern American home? So if if you look into an average home, we, we see hundreds or thousands of species of fungi. We see thousands of species of bacteria, many kinds of arthropods, insects, and their relatives. We did one study of homes in Raleigh. In just 50 homes, we found more than a thousand kinds of insects and their relatives. And then the other realization is that it differs drastically from one home to another. And so then this question of why it's so different also becomes interesting. You know, we can sample the air in your house and we get sort of a big picture of But then we can sample narrow habitats, too. There are uh, species in salt shakers that we tend to only find in really extreme salt flats in the deserts. There are species in hot water heaters that we most often find in uh, hot springs, like in Yellowstone or Iceland. There's a species of fungus in the soap dish in many dishwashers that's found there and in the feces of tropical fruit bats. That's the other piece of what we're seeing is that we have these unique habitats we've made without really thinking about what are they going to favor. And each one seems to favor some unique life forms. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it seems really obvious when you pointed out in your book, but it was totally awe-inspiring for me to think of my house as a home to all of these extreme micro-environments. I think part of it's the scale, too, that we tend to think, well, a salt shaker is so small, what could it possibly have in it? And yet, from the perspective of bacteria, a salt shaker is immense. You know, it might as well be a whole desert. And so we often create these teeny tiny habitats without imagining that they could sustain anything. Your freezer is the same or, you know, the coils behind your oven. I mean, I I study this stuff, but I I still find it hard to think from the perspective of this very small life um, to remember that when you're so very small, the world looks quite different. So is it that the house has all of these extreme, very different niches that accounts for like all the thousands of species? Or are there other factors involved like dogs, say, or like muddy boots? It's a bunch of different things and it varies from house to house. And so you can kind of think of it as a, a gradient. And so at the one end, you have like, like the International Space Station. When you look at what's found on the kinds of species in the space station, they tend to be species associated with the astronauts' bodies 
where species able to break down the actual material of the space station. And apartments in Manhattan are often sort of like that too. If they're really sealed up tight, it's mostly a, a representation of what lives on us, or really what is living off of the building itself. At the other extreme, you have traditional houses that are you know, relatively open to the environment, and then a lot of what's coming in is coming in through open windows. It's coming in with animals. And, and I think most of our houses are in between those two. Uh, and so you have some things coming in with animals. You have some rooms that are more sealed off. But what we see is that there are a few things that you can do that sort of change where you are on that continuum. And so as you suggested, if you have a dog, it has a really big effect on which microbes enter your house. If you have a cat, the same thing if you open your windows. And so you can sort of shift your place on this continuum of life. So is there a difference in the homes of dog people and cat people? Yeah. So the single biggest predictor of which species of bacteria you have in your home is whether or not you have a dog. Cats seem to have a smaller and different effect on what lives in the house. But for the most part, we can tell you whether you have a cat or a dog based on which species are in your house. Now, that's a very expensive uh, party trick of no great utility because you already know, right? Um, but it's, it's indicative of the fact that they're really changing which species are there. Yeah. Well, also, dogs are cooler. Um, <laughs> I mean, besides grouping all of these bacteria in terms of like their actual classification, so bacteria, fungi, archaea, etc., can you also group them in terms of like body critters and then environmental critters? Are there other categories, too? Yeah, so the body versus environmental would be a big grouping. And, and so we've seen across studies that, you know, the more we seal off our houses, the more we tend to favor the body-associated things. And so in the space station or in daycares, those sorts of environments tend to be really dominated by skin, oral, fecal microbes. And in daycares, Deanna Beasley at the University of Tennessee Chattanooga has done a nice study recently where she's been able to show if you look on the outside of the windows of the daycare, you see soil microbes and plant-associated microbes, and they change from season to season. But an inch away in the inside of that window, you just see like the microbes of the teacher and the kids. The good news is you can open that window and suddenly reconnect to all those environmental microbes, which we tend to think of as mostly beneficial. But then we can parse the microbes in other ways. We have a lot of microbes that are food-associated. And so if you're thinking about, well, where is the biggest living mass of microbes in my home? In most cases, it's in your refrigerator. So all of those things in your refrigerator are alive, and you've cooled them and so slowed the life, but it's all still there. And that's a lot of things that uh, very often we want in our food. They're flavoring our food. They make our kimchi, our sourdough starter, our cheese. Um, but we want to control you know, just which species are there. Yeah. I mean, I just made some kimchi yesterday, actually. So the whole book for me was like, wow, this is amazing. So many microbes. I love it. So useful. But I imagine that a lot of people listening to this or reading your book would be really put off by the thought that there are hundreds of thousands of tiny little animals living amongst them. So make the case for why these bacteria and archaea and fungi and whatnot are, are good for us. What do they do for us? Yeah, so I, I think that there are multiple points here. So, so one is that it's a foregone conclusion that any room that you're in is going to be f filled with life. 
surgical operating rooms, right, are full of life. You're not going to get rid of the microscopic life around you. And so the first point to make is that you don't have a choice to make of making some room in your house sterile. You just have a choice about which life is going to be there. If you really try to kill everything in your house to make it really sterile, in many cases what you're going to favor is the very toughest, most resilient species, which tend not to be very good for us. All the products advertised that kill 99% of the germs. That's like the worst proportion of the germs to kill, right? Because that leaves the 1%. And the 1% is not the kindest, gentlest 1%. So that would be the second point. The third point, though, is that the vast majority of this, these species around you every day are either innocuous or beneficial, that your body relies on microbes to exist. If you really stripped away all of the microbes from your body, you wouldn't be a functional human. You know, we've tried to make cats totally sterile and really awful experiments. It doesn't work. It's really hard. They scratch all the stuff up, and we can't do it. There are mice where we've removed all their microbes, and those mice are super weird and dysfunctional. We need microbes to, to go about our day-to-day -day lives. And we're starting to see in kids lots of new autoimmune and allergy disorders that seem to be associated with losing key microbes that we need. And, and so it looks as though we've made a bunch of collective lifestyle decisions that make it harder and harder for our children to get the microbes they need to be healthy. And so the trick there is we don't know exactly which microbes they are yet. But we, we know that we need a lot of these microbes for our guts to work, for our skin to work, for our immune systems to work. And so right now, the most sensible thing is to make sure you're being exposed to a diversity of things in soil and on plants to increase the chance that your kids or you have what you need. And then the, the other point is that for all the things we do as a society, uh, we rely on nature in some way or another. And that's true for medicine. It's true for producing detergents. It's true for making beer and wine and bread, that we rely on nature to find the enzymes, to find the microbes, to find the species that we use to do those things. But the truth is we've explored nature really incompletely. The proportion of species that we've checked uh, the ways in which they might be useful is tiny, tiny, tiny. And so the final reality about the life in your home is that much of that life, if we study it well, can be useful to society in some bigger collective way. And so what we need to develop are models for using these biocides, pesticides, antibiotics, chlorination, in those cases in which we most need them to control the pathogens that are really dangerous, and then to balance that with other approaches that allow the species that are not dangerous and may actually be helping us to, to also coexist with us. And th that's not easy. I mean, there's a reason we don't do it. It's, it's, it's a quite challenging endeavor. But I think if we don't talk about it, we're never going to get there. So, I mean, what would that look like in my house? I kind of see how it works with bacteria, for instance, like only prescribe antibiotics when you know they're going to work. But I mean, it's a little bit different if I'm thinking about like, okay, how do I clean my shower so that I kill the bad germs, but I keep the good ones? Yeah, it, that's a great question. And um, this is going to seem like a cop out. But one of the answers is that when we know that nature is already doing these things for us, we need to not screw it up. One of the reasons that we have to chlorinate is because often the aquifers from which drinkable water comes have become polluted. But for example, in, in Vienna and Austria, the water that comes out of the pipes 
is from the aquifer and it's not treated in any way. And so what's relied upon in that case is natural biodiversity in the aquifer to get rid of the pathogens in the water um, and to make it potable. And that turns out to be a great solution, but it's only a great solution if we don't screw up that aquifer. Uh, in the same way, not overusing antibiotics works if we don't screw up the gut microbes in our guts and the skin microbes on our skin in such a way that makes the whole system break down in a way that we have to have antibiotics as part of staying healthy. And, and so a key piece is making sure that those sort of natural gardens of biodiversity that we rely on without paying attention to are in good enough shape that we can depend on them. Now, I, I think that in the long run, we'd love to figure out how do we make, you know, kind of gardens of beneficial microbes that we can rely on in our homes and, you know, what is the 2.0 version of this look like? And I think that the one group of people who's figured this out is, is chefs and bakers. But from a purely science-driven perspective, it's going to be a while before we get there, in part because we still understand so little about how these systems work. So let's talk about those chefs and bakers. What is, I guess, the magic working to garden rather than just raise these uh, little colonies of bacteria? So kimchi is actually an amazing example of this. You're adding these ingredients, and then there are also microbes from your skin, from your body, from your house that are an invisible part of that mix. And then that kimchi starts to ferment. And when it becomes sufficiently acidic, you know it's safe to eat. And even though it's got these ingredients that on their own can for sure make you sick, that collectively it's actually a healthy ecosystem for consumption. The microbes in the kimchi are producing these compounds that get rid of other microbes that compete with them. And so that includes the acid. And so in a way, it's a community that weeds itself. It's a, a self-weeding garden. Uh, and so, I mean, that's actually a beautiful model for what we would love to have in the long run. How do we make self-weeding gardens of species that benefit us in our houses while at the same time helping to keep bad species at bay? The other thing that's amazing to me with kimchi is that in Korean, there's a word that means hand flavor. That word is meant to convey the flavor that a Korean chef uh, gives to their food uniquely, that particular chef. And so I, I actually think that some of that hand flavor is the flavor of the microbes of the chef going into the food. And, and so to me, then, the kimchi both is a garden that weeds itself, and it's a garden that builds on heritage and family and who you are. I mean, I think that's a perfect model for what we think of as the the kind of life we want in our homes. We want life that benefits us, life that tastes great, life that reminds us of our past and our families. What more could you hope for? I mean, you tested this too, right? You tested the hand flavor of various people when it comes to bread, right? Yeah, we, we brought together a bunch of uh, bakers in, in uh, Belgium at the Parato Center for Bread Flavor, all of whom had made the same starter using the same flour mixing it with water, letting it bubble up. And then we, we tested which microbes were on those bakers' hands and which microbes were on their starters and whether those microbes contributed different flavors when they made the same bread. And what we found was that the bakers and their bakeries had unique effects on the starters that they were making, even if we gave them the same ingredients. And so this is a measure of that same hand flavor as it relates to bread. But the other crazy thing with the Baker study 
was that when we looked at the baker's hands, they were very unusual. They, in fact, looked more like sourdough starters than they looked like the hands of other people we had studied. And so this was really remarkable for me because what it looks like is that by making bread every day or several times a day, the bakers change the microbes on their skin. And we know that the microbes on your skin and in your body are so much a part of who you are that, that we could say that the bakers actually, through their daily actions, change themselves. And so what that made me wonder is about my own life, the lives of my kids. What do their daily actions say about them in ways that we would measure on the life around them? And what do we want our hands to say about us? To get the details on that delicious bread experiment or the scoop on the world's largest ever study of the ecology of showerheads, which is really interesting, actually, you'll have to check out Rob Dunn's book, Never Home Alone. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 